For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. It's interesting that in God's timing, our next essentials class is the importance of small groups. Maybe we should do that in here next week. Because there's a sense in which this sermon, and in fact this whole mini-series, is connected in a way to how our small groups are functioning. Small groups are central to our philosophy of ministry here. This is the way we can facilitate the living out of the one another's that we see in scripture. The kinds of interactions that cause our sanctification and fellowship together. But small groups are not the point. Small groups are not the end we have in sight. What we have in mind is how we love one another. And what we have in sight is heaven. And to the extent that we can, we want to live our lives here together as much as within our power in a way that's fit for heaven. Heaven is perfect. In heaven, love is perfect. So to the extent that we can understand what perfect love for God and for each other will be like in heaven, we want that to inform our lives here. And that's why we believed it was necessary to pause the study in Romans. What is the point of knowing and understanding Romans or any other book of the Bible? It's not that we would speak in the tongues of men and angels. It's not simply that we would understand all mysteries and all knowledge. It's not only that we would have faith that would move mountains. The ultimate end is not that we would give all our goods to the poor and perhaps even our bodies to be burned. It's that we would love. Love as Christ has taught us to love. Love as Christ has loved us. It's that we would love Christ and love one another. Think of the love that's described in verses 4 to 7 here. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked 
thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The plan here today is to unpack this as much as we can. We're going to do that in part with the help of Jonathan Edwards, who preached a series of sermons in 1738, collected into a book titled Charity and Its Fruits. In that series, he said, those who are going to heaven are those with this love in them on earth, who are also those who prefer heaven over happiness on earth. And that's something that Christ himself said and that the apostles made abundantly clear. This is the love that marks true believers, a love that involves faithfulness, commitment, an act of the will, a love characterized by its lofty moral nature, a love that intends for the best possible things for others. Think with me as I read a few passages um, about what the Lord said. Consider the demands and the commands and the responsibilities of true faith. Don't expect you to turn to each of these, but just listen. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christ is at the Last Supper calling his disciples to a sacrificial love modeled after his own love for them. What makes it a new commandment is that we have Christ's example. It's impossible for us even to have any understanding of this degree of perfect love apart from the Spirit of God enabling us or even to aim for this degree of perfect love apart from the Spirit working in us. Yet as regenerate people enabled to rightly respond to the commands of God, this is our desire, to love perfectly. And Christ here says, to love as he has loved us. At this point, before the cross, what the disciples had already experienced, Matthew Henry summed it up. He said, Christ spoke kindly to them, concerned himself heartily for them and for their welfare, instructed, counseled, and comforted them, prayed with them and for them, vindicated them when they were accused, took their part when they were run down, publicly owned them to be dearer to him than his mother or sister or brother, 
he reproved them for what was amiss and yet compassionately bore their failings, excused them, made the best of them, and passed by many an oversight. Thus, he had loved them and just now washed their feet. And thus they must love one another and love to the end. Henry continued, Our love to one another must be free and ready, laborious and expensive, constant and persevering. It must be love to the souls of another. We must also love one another from this motive and upon this consideration because Christ has loved us first. And then there's John 15, uh, verses 10 to 14 and 17. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And then verse 17, these things I command you, that you love one another. It's a weighty command. Recognizing our helplessness, we cling to Christ and as much as is within our strength and enabled by the Spirit. We abide in Him. We don't turn away. We don't fall away. And when we do, we have a foretaste of the fullness of joy that He speaks of in verse 11, of communion with God. And in that communion, we are enabled to love one another in a partial way at least, to the full way that Christ has loved us. And so in this passage, what we see is John Calvin pointed out, the Father pours out his love on Christ, Christ pours out his love on us, that we may then love him and love one another. First John is rich with this message in which we're told that a test of knowing him, his love for one another. Listen to 1 John 2, 9 to 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We have these passages from verse 1 John 3. And I'm just doing a quick survey to um, remind us of some of these things. 
we are accused of having a faith that is hateful. Um, that the things that we believe are intolerant. Um, and that we hate those who don't see the kingdom of God. But the message is love. The command is love. The mark of disciples is love. 1 John 3, verse 10 to 11. And this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verses 13 to 15. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verses 16 to 19, again from 1 John 3. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. There's so much. I want you to just look for a second at Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the main thing. Alistair Begg apparently was the first one who said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And that is certainly the case here. The main thing is love. Love for God and love for one another. In Matthew 22, Christ summed up the commands in this way, starting in verse 35. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Those of you who were here last week heard Ryan's sermon on Ephesians 4, 12 to 15. I was grateful for that, for those exhortations. Maybe we can get him to come back and preach um, on some of the verses that follow. Look with me for a second at 
how we practice love, starting in verse 25 of Ephesians 4. So then, putting away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Those who steal must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor, doing good work with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you see how living in these ways is fulfilling the law of God? Put away all falsehood and speak the truth. Be angry at evil. Have an anger that hates sin, but do not sin. Give up stealing. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. This kind of instruction is just what we need. Because we're prone to do all of these things. We need practical how-to things that tell us how to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Paul continues in chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. More straightforward instruction. These are the, this is just kind of the bottom line, right? I mean, the least we could do is stop lying to each other, stop stealing from each other, and these other things. But apart from the Spirit of God making us sensitive to and grieved by our own sin, we do these things all the time. In the gospel, we're awakened to the sinfulness of sin, to the holiness of God, to the beauty and grace of Christ as Savior. And by the Spirit, in time, we're enabled to live in obedience. And we come closer to loving one another and loving God when we do that. But we're called to much more. I mean, think back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. We're called to set aside envy, pride, selfishness, anger, a critical spirit. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on each one of these sins. And these sermons, along with the last in the series, were put together in a book, as I mentioned, called Charity and Its Fruits. We're going to take some time looking at the last in that series, which he called Heaven, a World of Love. 
In his sanctified imagination, Edwards in that sermon paints a picture of the kind of pure love we will experience there. And in doing so, gives us a better understanding of what we should be aiming for here in our relationships with one another. But before we do that, I want to make the case that the love to which we're called in this life is yet more, even than what's called for in verses in First Corinthians 13. A few years ago, was it years ago, we did a series here on the Ten Commandments. We also did a study in small groups on the law and the gospel. And the basis of the, of the small group study was a book by John Calhoun in which he gave us rules for rightly understanding the Ten Commandments. And these are worth considering again here this morning as we think about love being the fulfillment of the law. Right, there, there were ten, I'm not going to read them all, but the first three I'll read and then number ten. Where a duty is required, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is required. So, if the sin of lying is forbidden, by implication, you must do everything within your power to speak the truth, defend the truth, tell the truth, be truthful. Where a duty is required, every duty of the same kind is also required. And where a sin is forbidden, every sin of the same sort is prohibited. Rule number three, that which is forbidden is at no time to be done, but that which is required is to be done only when the Lord affords opportunity. He goes through several more and he gets to rule 10. The beginning and the end, as well as the sum of all the commandments is love. There's a sermon, at least one, in each of these rules. Many sermons, to be sure, in each of the commandments. But we don't have time to preach the whole Bible here this morning. The focus of our time here is to exhort you and encourage and equip you to love each other in the way that God has called us to do that. We're to love each other as Christ has loved us. And we have practical instruction. There are verses throughout the Bible that tell us very specific ways in which we're to love each other. In his book, The Church, Why Bother?, Jeffrey Johnson, a pastor who visited us here some years ago for a conference on Islam, some of you will recall that, noted some of the principal responsibilities we have for each other. I wanted to review those with you briefly. I don't have them in the exact same order that he did, but we're to be active in accountability. And I'm going to sort of go through his outline and then read you the verses that he cites and with a little commentary on each one. But Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, 
lest you also be tempted. There's an accountability that's implied there. There's an, uh, an understanding and engagement with the life of that person that would make it possible for you to know whether they're overtaken in some trespass. And here the sense is how to deal with someone caught in some overt sin, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, we're not to come at them in some holier-than-thou attitude, but in love, understanding we're all sinners in various stages of sanctification, and none of us is immune from thinking wrongly or acting sinfully. But in a wider sense, we're in this faith together, we're in this church together on a mission that we want to accomplish together, and that is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. The forever part we are going to get to here in a minute in this sermon of Edwards that I hope will give you a glimpse of what we're aiming for. But so in, in accountability to one another, we, we're to submit to one another. Ephesians 5, 20 and 21 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This comes just before Paul transitions into speaking of a number of different relationships that involve authority. Husbands and wives, children and parents, workers and masters. But Paul underscores the point here, as John MacArthur put it, that no believer is inherently superior to any other believer in their standing before God. They're equal in every way. When you join this church, you are submitting to one another for the rest of your life, for the rest of your membership here. That's what you're doing. You're committing to edify one another. Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. In this section of Romans, we find Paul's instructions about limiting our liberties for the sake of the consciences of others, of not judging others' motives or weaknesses, but rather focusing together on glorifying God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. I think about the call to repentance and the struggles that we have. But one day, we who are in Christ will be with Christ. Regardless of whether we die before 
his return or are alive then and we're to comfort each other and edify each other as we battle the world, the flesh and the devil. I love what Matthew Henry said about this passage. He wrote, As Christians are lively stones built up together a spiritual house, they should endeavor to promote the good of the whole church by promoting the work of grace in one another. And it is the duty of every one of us to study that which is for the edification of those with whom we converse to please all men for their, moral, for their real profit. We should communicate our knowledge and experiences to one another. We should join in prayer and praise with one another. We should set a good example one before another. I'm reminded of what Ryan was speaking about last week, speaking the truth to each other in love. We need to be able to do that. Exhorting one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You can't do this if the only thing you do is show up on Sunday morning and leave. There's a sense in which that's better than not coming at all. (laughs) But that is not the life that we're being called to live here. It's a life together because we need each other, we go astray. We wander off. We wander into danger when we stray from the flock and especially from the great shepherd. If we're not engaged in the lives of the people here, there's a heart problem. And that's a generous view. You may not have the kind of love for each other that's the mark of a Christian. Or you don't understand how needy you are. God has given every believer spiritual gifts because every other believer needs the benefit and blessing of those gifts. That was a key point last week in Ryan's sermon and you'll be hearing this again and again. I expect. And what the scriptures are telling us here is that the very least you can do is show up. Romans 12, 6 to 8, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're to admonish one another. Pastor Mark was speaking about this in Sunday school. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is Colossians 3.16. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is, this is for you to do, church. <laughs> Teaching and admonishing one another. So much of what passes for church today is show, um, performance, spoon-feeding, Um, you have great responsibilities as Christians to each other and as members of this church. You're to teach and warn each other. And if necessary, follow through with church discipline. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that speak about church discipline. By the grace of God, we have seen people restored to a genuine, well, restored to the church, come to a genuine faith because of the practice of church discipline here. Um, it's not always the case that the person being disciplined is an unbeliever, and that's what Second Thessalonians three fourteen and 15 is speaking about. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and, and do not keep company with him that he, he may be ashamed Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So we see in our responsibilities to each other, especially as it relates to accountability, submitting, edifying, exhorting, admonishing, discipline. But there's more. We're to be active in fellowshipping with one another. Think of... Philemon 6. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that Philemon's sharing will result in his own deeper knowledge of every good thing in Christ a deeper awareness and experience of the blessings that Christ has for him. <laughs> Praise the Lord for this kind of blessing and wisdom that you know, in our lives together we are strengthened and encouraged and come to a richer understanding. That's why we need each other and why we're called to love each other in these ways. We're to be active in caring for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We often, how are you doing? I'm fine. 
we're dying inside. Um, experiencing difficulties and griefs and losses and you know if 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 the sum of your interaction is how you doing i'm fine you're not going to know these things um pay attention to each other ask questions listen consider the countenance Supporting the work of the ministry. When you do that, when you give, you are blessing everybody else here. Um, And in Jeffrey Johnson's list, there's this one toward the end, to be active in prayer. James 5, 16 to 18, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. There's some discussion and debate about the first part there, confessing your trespasses to one another. Uh, There's disagreement about whether, you know, there's a a need to uh, confess secret sins um, or whether this is specifically related to illness. I think there's... Uh, some truth in both arguments. Uh, certainly, if you are struggling with sin, reach out to someone to help you. But the thing I want to point you to here primarily is the effectiveness of prayer. Alec Mottier's commentary on this book is very helpful. He reminds us of the highs and lows of Elijah, who's described here as a man with a nature like ours. He prayed just like we are capable of praying. When he prayed, fire consumed the sacrifice offered in front of all the prophets of Baal. Shortly after that, though, he's running from the threats of Jezebel, And that's the point that James is making. He's a man with a nature like ours. Listen to Mottier's commentary here. He could rise to the heights of faith and commitment and fall into the depths of despair and depression. He could be brave and resolute sometimes and then fly for his life at the whiff of danger. He could be selfless in his concern for others and then filled with self-pity. In other words, he was an ordinary person but he was right with God in the way that every Christian is. The general truth which James is drawing out is the history of Eli- in the history of Elijah is expressed in verse 17. Human prayer, divine results. To withhold rain is something only God can do. Verse 18 draws it out a little further. Prayer operates even in the apparently fixed 
laws of the natural order. God the creator orders the life of the world in the light of the prayers of his people. So don't neglect praying for each other. And you're not going to know how to pray for each other if you don't spend some time together. Why is this prayer such hard work? Because we are weak. Um, and the very source of strength that we need is the communion with God that we have in prayer. Next to showing up, praying is the least we can do for each other. It requires love. It requires discipline. And David McIntyre said it requires hard work. He wrote an essay that I recommend to all of you called The Hidden Life of Prayer. And he recommends a quiet place, a quiet hour, and a quiet heart so that you might pray effectively. And in talking about a quiet heart, what he suggests is that you think about Christ on the cross. To put your mind in a a right frame when you pray. But he says that what you gain from prayer is holiness, intimacy with Christ, and a richer influence and a wider usefulness among God's people. So in these ways then, we're to love one another. As Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, well, verses 2 and 3 says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we see in 1 Peter 1.22 that we're called to fervent love. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. This is to stretch yourself to the limits in loving each other. That's what, that's what, that's what Peter's saying. Stretch yourself to the limits. Does that look like the way you live among the brethren now? I'm preaching to myself here too. This is where Jonathan Edwards helps us to understand what this is like. Uh, He's most famously known probably for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God but hundreds of dissertations and books and articles have been written about Edwards and his ministry and most argue that he was far better known for preaching on the themes of heaven and love. And they seem to agree that the pinnacle of his preaching was a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 on verses 8 to 10. Verse 10 in particular about when the perfect has come. 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So he starts out in verse 8, love never fails. Everything else fails, falls, ends, according to these verses. Prophecies end, tongues end, even knowledge ends. And I don't want to get into a discussion of exactly what all that means, but what doesn't end is love. And it's on this thought that Edwards begins a meditation of perfect love in his sermon. Heaven, a world of love. I don't read these things to exalt this man. I read them because they're helpful in plumbing the depths of the meanings of these verses. And in the course of history, God gives us gifted men who have by grace helpful insights into the meaning of the revelation of God and his word. And in this sermon, Edwards addresses what he calls the excellent circumstances in which love shall be exercised and blessed and enjoyed in heaven. This was a 16,000 word sermon. (laughs) I'm not going to read all of it. Um, But I am going to read to you a few hundred words. Um, And I want you to set your minds on this as he describes it for us. He, 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 he makes ten, ten points that he, in which he, he characterizes perfect love in heaven. I'm going to read a few. Or actually just parts of a few. Love in heaven is always mutual. All the saints will love God with an inconceivable ardency of heart and to the utmost of their capacity so they will know that he has loved them from all eternity and still loves them and will continue to love them forever. And God will then gloriously manifest himself to them and they shall know that all that, hap- all that happiness and glory which they are possessed of are the fruits of his love. And with the same ardor and fervency will the saints love the Lord Jesus Christ and their love will be accepted and they shall know that he has loved them with a faithful, yea, even with a dying love. The joy of heavenly love shall never be interrupted or dampened by jealousy. Heavenly lovers will have no doubt of the love for each other. They shall have no fear that the declarations and professions of love are hypocritical, but shall be perfectly satisfied of the sincerity and strength of each other's affection, as much as if there were a window in every breast so that everything in the heart could be seen. There shall be no such thing as flattery or dissimulation in heaven, but there perfect sincerity shall reign through all and in all. Everyone will be just what he seems to be and will really have all the love that he seems to have. It will not be as in this world where comparatively few things are what they seem to be and where professions are often made lightly and without meaning, 
But there, every expression of love shall come from the bottom of the heart, and all that is professed shall be really and truly felt. There shall be nothing within themselves to clog or hinder the saints in heaven in the exercises and expressions of love. In this world, the saints find much to hinder them in this respect. They have a great deal of dullness and heaviness. They carry about with them a heavy, molded body, a clot of earth, a mass of flesh and blood that is not fitted to be the organ for a soul inflamed with high exercises of divine love. But in heaven they shall have no such hindrance. There they will have no dullness, no unwieldiness, and no corruption of heart to war against divine love and hinder its expressions. And there no earthly body shall clog with its heaviness the heavenly flame. The saints in heaven shall have no difficulty in expressing all their love. Their souls being on fire with holy fire shall not be like a fire pent up, but like a flame uncovered and at liberty. Their spirits being winged with love shall have no weight upon them to hinder their flight. There shall be no want of strength or activity, nor any want of words wherewith to praise the object of their affection. Nothing shall hinder them from communing with God and praising and serving him just as their love inclines them to do. Love naturally desires to express itself, and in heaven the love of the saints shall be at full liberty to express itself as it desires, whether it be towards God or to created beings. There shall be nothing external in heaven to keep its inhabitants at a distance from each other or to hinder their most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. There shall be no wall of separation in heaven to keep saints asunder, nor shall they be hindered from the full and complete enjoyment of each other's love by distance or of habitation, they shall all be together as one family in their heavenly Father's house, nor shall there be any want of full acquaintance to hinder the greatest possible intimacy, and much less shall there be any misunderstanding between them or misinterpreting things that are said or done by each other. There will be no disunion through difference of temper or manners or circumstances or from various opinions or interests or feelings or alliances, but all shall be united in the same interests and alike allied to the same Savior and all employed in the same business, serving and glorifying the same God. In heaven all things shall conspire to promote their love and give advantage for mutual enjoyment. There shall be none there to tempt any to dislike or hatred, no busybodies, no malicious adversaries to make misrepresentations or create misunderstandings or spread abroad any evil reports, but every being and everything shall conspire to promote love and the full enjoyment of love. Heaven itself, the place of habitation, is a garden of pleasures, a heavenly paradise fitted in all respects for an abode of heavenly love, a place where they may have sweet society and perfect enjoyment of each other's love. 
None are unsocial or distant from each other. The petty distinctions of this world do not draw lines in the society of heaven, but all meet in the equality of holiness and of holy love. And then number 10. The inhabitants of heaven shall know that they shall forever be continued in the perfect enjoyment of each other's love. They shall know that God and Christ shall be forever with them as their God and fortune, and that his love shall be continued and fully manifested, and that all their beloved fellow saints shall forever live with them in glory and shall forever keep up the same love in their hearts which they now have, and they shall know that they themselves shall ever live to love God and love the saints and to enjoy their love in all its fullness and sweetness forever. They shall be in no fear of any end to this happiness or of any abatement from its fullness and blessedness or that they shall ever be weary of its exercises and expressions or cloyed with its enjoyments or that that or that the beloved objects shall ever grow old or disagreeable so that their love shall at last die away. That is the kind of love and the kind of life that we've been called to live. Not just in eternity, but as much as is within our power in this church here and now. But you can't live this way apart from living in close communion with God, apart from walking in the Spirit because of the very weight of your own sin nature. Near the end of this sermon, Edwards counseled his listeners in the way they should go. In all your way, let your eye be fixed on Jesus who has gone to heaven as your forerunner. Look to him. Behold his glory in heaven, that a sight of it may stir you up more earnestly to desire to be there. Look to him and his example. Consider how by patient continuance and well-doing and by patient endurance of great suffering, he went before you to heaven. Look to him as your mediator and trust in the atonement which he has made, entering into the holiest of all in the upper temple. Look to him as your intercessor, who forever pleads for you before the throne of God. Look to him as your strength, that by his spirit he may enable you to press on and overcome every difficulty of the way. Trust in his promises of heaven to those that love and follow him, which he has confirmed by entering into heaven as the head and representative and savior of his people. In short, meditate much on Christ, pray and have much communion with Christ. Don't let the world's worries distract you from Christ. Set your love on Christ, obey Christ, love Christ's people. And as for you, unbeliever, there will be no part of heaven for you apart from God and Christ having mercy on you. 
Why have you not cried out for mercy? Why have you not pleaded with God to accept you into his kingdom? Why have you not acknowledged that you're a hopeless, faithless sinner and that Christ is the only Savior? Do it now while there's still breath in your lungs. And you, young person, the time for you to think about your eternal soul is now. You are sitting in here with us now because you need Christ. You need to repent and believe the gospel. You will have no part of this heaven apart from responding to the gospel in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that this outpost of heaven here at Cornerstone would be more and more like the heaven we have heard about here today, that your love would so fill this place, love for you and love for each other, that we would have a greater sense day by day of all that you have in store for us and that as we draw nearer to that day we would all prove fitted for heaven that none here would be excluded from the love that's in Christ in Jesus name Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.